Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that our hearts are prone to wander. And we know that without your intervention, we would spend our whole lives going east or west, anywhere but to you. So we thank you that you have promised in your word a glorious intervention by your spirit, purchased by the blood of your son. And I pray this morning that your word would do that wonderful work of showing to us uh, the, the sadness of our state apart from you, the glory of the gospel of Jesus and the salvation that is promised through him to awaken dead hearts and strengthen those hearts that you have already made new. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Please open your Bibles this morning to 2 Chronicles chapter 36, the final chapter, Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 36. Second Chronicles 36, let's read verses 1 to 16. The people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and made him king in his father's place in Jerusalem. Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. Then the king of Egypt deposed him in Jerusalem and laid on the land a tribute of a hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold. And the king of Egypt made Eliakim his brother king over Judah and Jerusalem and changed his name to Jehoiakim. But Necho took Jehoahaz his brother and carried him to Egypt. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. Against him came up Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and bound him in chains to take him to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar also carried part of the vessels of the house of the Lord to Babylon and put them in his palace in Babylon. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim and the abominations that he did, and what was found against him, behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. And Jehoiachin, his son, reigned in his place. Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned three months and ten days in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. In the spring of the year, King Nebuchadnezzar sent and brought him to Babylon with the precious vessels of the house of the Lord and made his brother Zedekiah king over Judah and Jerusalem. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear by God. He stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. All the offices of the priests and of the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations, and they polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. Last week, we examined the reign of Josiah. 
who looked very much like this last hope for the people of Judah as they stood on the brink of exile. We saw that despite Josiah's exemplary rule, even he was not able to stop this descent into depravity, which was soon to be followed by God's judgment. After Josiah, this morning we enter this terrible cycle of wicked kings and wicked kings, and each one carries the kingdom further into sin and into ruin. Each one takes the throne, pollutes the people, pollutes the land, pollutes the temple, in a relatively short period of time, is conquered and is dragged away to exile. None of them ends their reign in Judah. Just like Manasseh got a foretaste of God's judgment by being taken into Babylon, each of these kings stands as a warning to the people of this impending doom that is coming for their wickedness. Zedekiah comes as the final king to show the culmination of this wicked cycle. Our author says, he also rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. He didn't listen to Jeremiah. When Nebuchadnezzar made him swear to God, he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. Zedekiah's oath-breaking not only put his own people in peril from Babylon, but he disgraces the name of God. And Zedekiah not only does not want to repent of his sins, he makes sure that he will never be a man who God can lead to repentance. He steals himself. The last thing he wants to do, come hill or high water, would be to plea to God. No foretaste of judgment. Nothing can induce him. He will worship birds, trees, fish, flowers. Just don't you dare make me worship God. Under the influence of this increasingly wicked leadership, we watch as this whole nation stands on the edge of ruin. They are following their own sin, as the, the chronicler says. The priests, the people were exceedingly unfaithful. They followed any abomination of the nations around them. They polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem. Judah has now become essentially indistinguishable from the nations around them. There's nothing left that you can look at to recognize that these are the Lord's people. There's nothing left to set them apart. The temple is being regularly ransacked by other nations and polluted by God's people. This house that was meant to show we are the people who dwell with God, who have peace with him. Instead, this people goes about worshiping whatever they please. And we watch as their wickedness grows, as the enemies close in, Egypt, nations around them, Babylon, foreign powers start appointing the kings of Judah. The temple is being plundered. It is astonishing that this kingdom is still standing at all by the time Zedekiah becomes king. So what is God doing while his people fall apart? The chronicler tells us, the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. Our first point this morning is this. God is patient so that he can be compassionate and persistent with those who sin against him. As we watch this pattern, this cycle of wickedness and rebellion 
exile, we see that the only reason the wheels have not come off Judah already is that God is holding them together himself. Even as his people give him no reason to do so, God is maintaining Judah and guarding them from this disaster so that he can continue to give them every opportunity to repent and turn to him. You see this in many of the prophets. These regular entreaties, these warnings, these consequences for sin are real, they are coming, but urging the people, return to the law. You can have peace with God if you only repent. The chronicler says these prophets continued to come and the people kept mocking the messengers of God, despising their words, scoffing at his prophets. We see this particularly unfolding, we see this quite well in the book of Jeremiah, who is mentioned in this chapter. Poor Jeremiah, who if you know this, his book in scripture is just constantly sent back again and again, bring another word to this people, preach to them again, warn them again, promise them again that if they turn from their wickedness, that God will bless them, that he will offer grace, even after the king is doomed, kingdom is doomed, Jeremiah goes and says, God will spare you. He comes with a message that if you submit to Nebuchadnezzar, if you go to Babylon, you will not be destroyed. God continues to make opportunities for these people to be spared even after the kingdom is doomed and even one day restore them to the land. And in response to this, Jeremiah is repeatedly threatened False prophets repeatedly rise up to say, no, no, I know what God says. Jeremiah is all doom and gloom. God has better news for us than that. Jeremiah is thrown into a pit. The king cuts up his prophecies and throws them bit by bit into the fire. Scorn, mocked, abused, just as the chronicler says. Even as Jeremiah is promising these people that God is going to be merciful to them, the people despise hearing about God's grace. They don't want to hear about God's deliverance. They don't want to hear about God's mercy because that message begins with hearing that they are wicked and hearing that they deserve God's punishment. That they are not worthy to stand before God in their own merit. Don't tell me God will punish my sin even if you want to tell me that he will be gracious to me. It is evident that this repeated effort from the prophets to bring this people to repentance is making a clear case for God's justice. We are meant, even as an audience, to get this undeniable picture. Look at the human heart. Look at the relationship we have to God and what we do with his gifts. How we tend naturally to despise him. How our hearts treat him as an enemy. God makes the case for our sin. He wants even us to see that we deserve our punishment because God desires to extend grace to us. The chronicler tells us why God waited, why he did not punish his people sooner, why he kept sending prophets to this people who kept scorning them, and it was because of his compassion. God looks at this people who spurn him, who hate him, who would say, give me anything to worship except that God, and he feels deep compassion. God's heart 
goes out to those people despising him and polluting his house, wanting them to repent and turn from their sin to him. The chronicler says he was compassionate even towards his dwelling place, to Jerusalem, to the temple. But even this is just compassion for the people because God's already told David he doesn't need a house. Solomon declared when it was dedicated, this isn't because God needs somewhere to stay. God loves the temple because it was the visible sign that he was with his people. Their assurance that he dwelt among them, that they could call on him and he would be found by them and be good to them and bless them. So while this people that God created, that he saved from Egypt, that he formed, that he protected, while that people is scoffing at God, the God who deserves to punish their sin, who made them, who created them, who has every right before them, He is the one forbearing with love and compassion, even persistently offering them restoration. This is God's incredible patience. Even while we defy and reject him. So our chronicler continues. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. This is our second point this morning. God has deemed a day when his patience is done, and his just wrath will certainly come. It isn't like God grew impatient Like his people just kept frustrating him and he was trying not to do anything about it, but the cork finally came off the bottle and God's wrath exploded. God patiently waited with perfect patience for the day when he deemed that their sin was complete. As he had said, he waited with the the Canaanites so many years earlier, the day when the full case was made, when the day of his patience would end and a remedy would no longer be offered. God's love for his compassion does not mean that God hates his justice. These come together in a perfect character. His perfect plan is to glorify himself, and he will do so by offering compassion and warning to a sinful people, and then he will glorify himself by exercising judgment against those who have mocked his warnings and continued to despise and reject him. Sin does not get the last word in God's creation. Rejecting and despising God and all that is good does not get the final word. Let's read 2 Chronicles 36, verses 17 to 21. Therefore, He brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand, and all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia. 
to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths all the days that it lay desolate. It kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Throughout our long sermon series in Chronicles, we have been referencing the original audience of the book. Exiles who have returned to Jerusalem, been restored to the land after spending their exile in Babylon. So we've been aware right from the beginning that two things are true. That the sin of Judah would eventually lead to exile and that the exiles would one day be restored to the land. However, as we look here at the punishment of God on Judah, we should see that the exile itself was not the full extent nor the strongest demonstration of God's justice. In fact, if we consider Jeremiah's warnings, going into exile was a grace that only some received. God raises up Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, also called the Chaldeans, to come to Jerusalem. And their first action is to bring widespread destruction. God removes his restraint on the Babylonians so that we hear that they kill without compassion. Men or women, young or old, all are given into their hand, not unlike how the Canaanites were given into the hand of the Israelites long ago. For many people in Judah, that day was the final end of compassion offered to them. After so much hatred of God, so many declarations that I am God's enemy, I hate him, and I should be seen and recognized as an enemy of God. The time for warnings was done. There was no more remedy, no more chance to repent or turn. Their life was over. Their record, how they had responded to God, is sealed. And they will take that record to God's judgment, where God justly gives them the sentence of the enemies that they so often declared they were, an eternity of destruction away from his manifest presence and all the goodness that comes with who God is. Those loosed Babylonians ransack the temple one more time and then destroy it. That visible sign of God's compassion and peace among his people is set on fire. After God had repeatedly raised up men, Hezekiah, Jeremiah, Josiah, to restore the temple again and again after it had been abused and mistreated, the temple is finally completely destroyed. No more altar of atonement for sin. No more mercy seat where the priests can represent the people to God. And Jerusalem itself reflects the fall of this manifestation of the presence of God. The city is torn down and trodden upon. Only after this total judgment does a remnant go into exile. They go still experiencing God's discipline, but they go as witnesses of God's judgment who have seen the wages of sin. They can now look back. They who had mocked, they who had spurned God, they who had rejected him, it had taken all of this just for them to see 
how compassionate God had been for so long, and how just thus was God to treat them as the enemies that they themselves had said they were. We hear the pain of this people at the fall of Jerusalem expressed in Lamentations. Lamentations 1.5 says of the city of Jerusalem, her foes have become the head, her enemies prosper because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away captives before the foe. Who then destroyed Jerusalem? Who does this people see as responsible for their fate? Who afflicted them? Was it the Babylonians? In a sense, it was. We hear here that it was her enemies, Jerusalem's enemies, who become her head. Her enemies prosper. But why can they prosper? Only because the Lord afflicted her. For the, because the Lord oversaw their punishment. Yet the people themselves recognize that it was they who brought about their ruin. Why did the Lord afflict her? For the multitude of her transgressions. This is why the day of judgment comes. Lamentations rings with this assurance that God's wrath has not just come, but now finally we see that God's wrath is just and part of his good character. Lamentations 2, the Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the inhabitants of Jacob. In his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Jerusalem, of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. Verse 5, the Lord has become like an enemy. These people who called themselves God's enemy for so long now see what it actually means to be an enemy of God. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid and ruined its strongholds, and he has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. The exiles finally see in despair what they refused to see while they were enjoying God's grace and compassion while they rejected him, that his compassion is not an argument against his justice that they participate together in the perfect character of a God who loves all that is good. And when his day of patience is done, his justice comes. Now, friends, the baffling wonder of wonders is that even in Lamentations, you see that there is still hope that after all of this judgment is seen and understood, now that God has shown it to him clearly, he still extends compassion to them. Lamentations 3.55, I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit, and you heard my plea. Do not close your ear to my cry for help. You came near when I called on you. You said, do not fear. Even after the judgment came on Judah, he was not finished extending his compassion. With no temple to cry out to, no land to dwell in, God still hears the cries of his people and promises to comfort them. Now, we are, we are going to focus particularly on that continued compassion and hope in next week's 
message, which will close our series on Chronicles. But what we should see at least today is that God continued to offer grace, continued to renew his covenants long after this punishment on Judah showed his good and righteous commitment to bring about his justice, to punish those who sin against him. Even after that judgment was shown, he still bore with their sin, still sent them prophets, still gave them the word, still offered his salvation to them. And that reminds us that all through the scriptures, God has compassionately saved and preserved a people for himself out of his judgments. He continues to offer compassion and patience to them when they deserved only his wrath. God patiently waited in the days of Noah. And when the flood finally did come, it was by God's grace, his salvation alone, that Noah and his family were spared. Likewise, when God's people were in slavery in Egypt, God heard their cries just as he heard the cries of these Jews in lamentations. And he saved them from Egypt, not because they didn't deserve to share the punishment the Egyptians received, but only because he showed his electing grace to them. And then he brought them in the wilderness and he promised to take them to the promised land and they continued to sin against him. They bowed to idols, they spurned his gifts and he did bring about his just punishment on that generation in the wilderness. And yet again, by his grace, he preserved a generation for himself and he still gave them the promised land. And he preserved them through that cycle of wickedness that we saw back in Judges and he preserved them as they sinned and sinned and now we see even here he patiently bore with them, and when he finally did bring his judgment on Judah, he still preserves a remnant in exile, continually offering grace, grace he had no burden to offer after he has brought about his judgment. So even now, God continues to wait with compassion and patience. Thousands of years later, he is still patient and compassionate to us. In 2 Peter, which our brother Caleb read for us, we are told clearly, God is currently being patient. Just like in the final days of Judah, we see God waiting while many scoffers come and mock his word and his messengers. Peter tells us that these scoffers will even use God's patience as proof that he doesn't exist. They look at this world with all its intricacy, its perfection, its beauty, its clear good and evil, the wonderful ways it reflects a powerful creator. But then they say, well, God, I don't see God. God is not active in this creation, and that must be proof that it runs on its own power. These processes have, have run as they always did. There is no God behind it. And if there somehow were, he clearly does not care or involve himself in his creation. Now, we have a record for how he has done that again and again. And Peter tells us why he is not seen at this moment. And it is not that he is silent, but it is that he is patiently waiting for an appointed day. His next appearance will mean judgment and wrath for all the sin which is plainly being displayed against him now. He waits so that he can continue to be persistent today, 
so that his prophetic word can go out just as it went out from the prophets in Judah to save his remnant, to preserve a people for himself who can claim nothing but his grace to save them out of those who will eventually go to destruction. Do not listen to those scoffers who use God's patience as a reason that he is not real or does not keep his word. We know why they can look at this world that he has created, why they can hear his perfect gospel and still despise it. Because just like with Judah, if we are to love a God who offers mercy, we first have to know that there is a God from whom we deserve wrath. Throughout history, we have seen this. So many of the preachers who most loved God's grace, who had a deep heart for God, are remembered historically as the prophets of doom and gloom, the old fire and brimstone preachers, just like with Jeremiah. And as was the case in the days of Jeremiah, enemies of God and false prophets claiming to speak for God continue to arise the humanistic worldview writes off believing in a God as a ridiculous fantasy for primitive peoples and children. They will accept anything as new age continues to grow, as people can talk about how a universe could instigate itself, a self-caused universe Aliens farming humanity, random chance producing life. Give me anything else, and I will tell you that is the belief of a rational, thoughtful person who knows what they're talking about while God is for children. Or false prophets, like the universalist who would twist God's patience into proof that compassion and judgment are never a part of the same character. That God's goodness on humanity must be, be, be because we are good. That we do not have a gracious God, we have a God that gives wages. And however you know God or feel like you want to know God, God must approve of that. Or the false prophets and false converts who can infiltrate any church. Whose ideas can infiltrate our own hearts. Because God is patient, they lose confidence that his promises will ever come to pass. They set down his word. They ignore him in creation. And they start storing up their treasures in this world. Now, some of them still hedge their bets. They make a decision for Jesus. So I've got my insurance plan just in case somehow that eternal stuff turns out to be real. But valuing Christianity is really only something they're interested in if you can tell them why it is useful now. If you find me a Christianity that costs this life and this world for the hope of the next one, I just don't have enough confidence to invest in that kind of Christianity. And so subtly and slowly, their gospel starts to reflect the cares and the priorities of the world around them. And finally, these fine, upstanding Christians would happily stand with the enemies of God and the false prophets and say, don't you dare preach to me that I should repent of sin, that God's wrath would come for sin. 
Don't you dare tell me that I am not fine as I am. Don't you dare offer me grace if it comes with a God who deserves to punish sin. And so for all those who mock God, who would twist who he is, who have become indifferent to whether or not he is true, Peter reminds us of what we saw in Chronicles. His good patience does not remove the goodness of his wrath. Indeed, we have seen that his patience even adds to the case that is made for why he must come and cleanse the world, just as the flood cleansed it, just as Judah was cleansed. The chronicler talks about this at the end of our passage this morning, that the exile was meant to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbaths to fulfill 70 years. The land itself breathes a sigh of relief after Judah is destroyed and the exiles go away, that God has dealt with the sin that has wounded and polluted God's creation. The idolaters and the wicked men who abused it, who committed such evil upon it, who worshiped it and made idols out of it to ignore the one who created it, have finally been removed, just like the flood had cleansed the world from sin. And so God's justice... All that is good in the world cries out, and his word cries out for it. When is it coming? How long will you bear with this wickedness? Romans says creation is like a woman groaning in childbirth. How long will you suffer such abuse and sin? It can see what we in our self-love and our pride hate to see. God, when will you cleanse us from these people with their arrogance? And God has deemed a day. The day will come. The compassion will finally no longer be extended. And Peter says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And again, he says, the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. God's world will be renewed. All that has been stained and corrupted will literally be burned up. And all those who have defied God, even used his patience to mock and deny him, will know what it means to be treated as the enemies that they have repeatedly assured God they are. Just as the exiles learned in Lamentations when they said, the Lord has become my enemy. The day when sin will be exposed, when our folly is exposed and wrath is poured out on enemies. Hell is the place where judgment is manifested. Adam and Eve's loss of the presence of, of life and the presence of God in the garden, the loss of the temple where God dwelt with his people and brought them peace, that is a foretaste of what hell is. Eternal destruction, eternal separation from the peace and the manifest presence of God. If for Judah, the presence of God in the temple meant life and peace and security and rest and joy, then hell is the anti-temple what Revelation calls the lake of fire. 
Jesus warns all those who are preoccupied with the pleasures and fears of this world, whether they call themselves religious or not, who let the world tell them, this is what you love, this is what you're going to be afraid of. He says, do not fear those who can kill the body, but after that have nothing they can do, but rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Friend, it is good. There is a good fear to have in the face of this reality. It is good to see how horrifying it is. But if you hate it, if you despise this reality and a God who would create a world with it, then you do not see yourself. And you are perhaps among those who mocked the prophets in Judah clearly misunderstanding who God was, what sin was, what the world was made for, and what would be right and just and good. And God wants you to see it. Creation is crying out in response to our wicked hearts. God wants you to see the depth of the stain that your selfish, arrogant heart is bringing into the world as you constantly, every day, demand your rights and pleasures. He wants you to open your eyes and see that if you have made yourself your own God, then you have declared yourself God's enemy. And the world waits for the days, the day when God's enemies will be dealt with. But why does God want you to see it? Because like the prophets preached to Judas so that they could repent and turn, he wants you to see that he has withheld his hand even now. Even though that day could have come long ago, he's withheld his hand because he desires to be gracious to you. Because he wants to spare you. As Peter said, do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. He's not being lazy. He's not a sluggard. He is being patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The day of wrath will come. It will be right that it came. It will be good that God's justice has displayed, just as it was good in Judah. But now he extends compassion. He is pleased to wait, even to wait for a long time. And he waits for our sake. Perhaps he waits for your sake. He waits so that he can persistently warn you so that more people can hear and repent and trust in him and be spared from that wrath that destruction, that exile, of which Judah's fall was just a foretaste. But God spared Manasseh. He would delight to spare you. To get his glory, not by showing his justice over you as his enemy, but to offer grace to you as an undeserved member of his people. So Peter tells us, count the patience of our Lord as salvation. God has been demonstrating this compassion and patience since the Garden of Eden. And every single person who lives to enjoy the promise of God's renewed creation will celebrate that he was compassionate and patient and waited so that good news could be preached to them. His compassion is still being extended to you right now. Why? If God truly deserves to punish his enemies. 
if he should punish his enemies, if creation were calling out for him to punish his enemies, why is he being patient? Why did he not just end the human project right away like a failed experiment? God delights to wait because he made a glorious way to justify sinners, to declare the worst enemies of God totally righteous, as if they had never sinned, and even then to make them righteous, those who had totally fallen into sin, to conform them to be more like himself, so that they themselves will not just be invited into his new creation, but will belong in it will be at home in it, at home even in the presence of God, rather than a stain on it. He did this not by refuting his own justice, but by magnifying his justice, by satisfying the perfect demands of his justice while offering us amazing grace. God is patient because he atoned for sin with a substitute to take its penalty, a perfect sacrifice, which could cover the sins of all those who repented of being enemies of God. This substitute would have to live a perfect life under God's law, be able to take the place of sinners, be able to bear the full wrath of hell. They would have to be one who had never sinned that still chose to experience what hell was like. And Jesus took that. He hung on that cross and absorbed the full weight of what it felt like to be an enemy of God. He took every single one of your declarations that you were God's enemy. He did so wearing that record around his neck, experiencing hell, so that he could come and say, take my perfect record and receive what that record deserves so that you could be declared not just overlooked, not, not just treated better than you deserve, but declared justified with justice-magnifying, grace-magnifying gospel love from God. Romans says clearly, this is why God was able to wait, why he could wait in the days of Noah and Judah now, Romans says, this, the death of Jesus, was to show God's righteousness because in divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. He could pass over sins and wait until Christ came. And it shows his righteousness now, at the present time, so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So this is our third point, our concluding point this morning. Jesus bore the full wrath of God so that God could have patience with sinners so that we could repent and receive his grace. It is because a sacrifice would be provided, a sacrifice sufficient to bear all the wrath that you deserved, a sacrifice so perfect that we could receive its perfect record and be justified, a sacrifice through which we could be cleansed and given the Holy Spirit. That is why God has been patient from the beginning. His plan to send Christ was the reason that Adam and Eve were not immediately struck down when they ate the fruit. It's the reason that God saved Noah from the flood, why a generation was preserved in the wilderness, why exiles were spared from destruction from Babylon. It's the reason God is waiting right now, because he extends to us the gospel of Jesus Christ, 
deliverance from his wrath, not just to be spared from his punishment, but then wonder of wonders to receive every blessing Jesus deserves because Jesus took the wrath that we deserve. Gospel of grace is not the opposite of justice. It celebrates it. It honors it. It sees all that is good about God's character. Thessalonians tells us that it is in fact Jesus, the author of our salvation, who is worthy to be the one who brings about God's judgment on those who sinned against him. Because those Thessalonians who received that letter from Paul knew what it was like to be mocked and scorned and persecuted like Jeremiah. And God promises them that there will be a day when they are given relief and that will be the day when those who scorn them are afflicted and Christ is the instrument of all of this. As 2 Thessalonians says, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The comforting promise to Jeremiah to the Thessalonians, to the persecuted prophets, and to those who suffer for the gospel now is that when the day of wrath comes for those who mocked and despised God's messengers, it will be the beginning of eternal relief and rest for those who are God's. So what will that day mean for you? Will it be the day when God grants relief to your affliction or will it be the day when you are afflicted with his just wrath? The only difference is Jesus. Has Jesus taken your punishment so that you now would willingly endure the loss of all of this world and its pleasures, endure its scorn and mocking because your hope is in his renewed world forever? Or are you still so desperately clinging to what you think you deserve? What you would hate God to have taken away? What you have perhaps even mocked God for wanting you to sacrifice to him while God has been patient with you? We do not know the day or the hour of his coming, but now is the moment. While we know he is patient, his compassion is still extended. The author of Hebrews renews a call that went out to those Israelites in the wilderness who were abusing God's compassion then. It's a call that's gone out through history and goes out still. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Do not be like those, he said, who hardened their hearts and then failed to enter God's rest. Do not delay. You do not know the day God has ordained for his patience to be done, but for the sake of his name, that day is coming, and that is the only reason we do not see him now. So do not wait for tomorrow. Do not wait another hour. 
While his compassion continues to be extended, call out to Jesus, and that is all you need do for salvation. Say that you desire his death would cover the wrath that your sin deserves, so that you be delivered from the wrath to receive an eternal kingdom that he alone deserves. That he invites all who are his to receive. Trade your sin, trade all the world if you have to, for hope in Jesus. And then, Christian, as we wait for that day, knowing that it will be our relief instead of our affliction, let's be patient as God is patient. And let's be compassionate as he is compassionate. Do not get angry when the world takes away things that can only be lost. Don't hate them for being the enemies of God that we already know they are. And don't take justice into your hands. Don't grieve the loss of this world when they scorn and mock us even. Hold fast to Jesus in the midst of the anger. Extend compassion to them. Be persistent in proclaiming the good news to them as the prophets were so that God's patience would bear the harvest he said it would. If they hate you, it's because all the more they hated him who sent you. But God knows who are his. He knows you. He knows you in your time of exile, and his eternal hope and rest will come and relieve our affliction, just as he promised hope to those exiles in Judah. So hold on to your hope in Jesus, and be so thankful, even as we experience some of the pain and suffering of this world, that he has spared all those who are his from the suffering and wrath that should have been ours, that we had so clearly deserved because our Savior bore that suffering for us. Praise be to our God for his justice and his compassion. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your perfect character. And Father, we thank you that you are patient Father, I pray that we would see the reality of our nature, that we would not be blind to our sin, and that we would recognize the punishment we deserve. And Father, may we not then linger in that despair, but may we see it so that we can see how gracious you are to offer us a hope in Jesus. May we not be too proud to know that we are people who could only be saved by grace. And then, Father, as we know your grace, may we rest in it, waiting for the day when you will relieve those who are afflicted, even that day when you afflict those who have afflicted your people. God, may Jesus come soon, and may we be faithful in the persistent declaration of the goodness of this gospel until that day comes. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.